I'm Darren Morton. I'm Simon Matthews. This is Lift, the lifestyle medicine podcast where we dive into the science of health and well-being. I'm Simon Matthews. I'm a lifestyle medicine psychologist certified by the International Board of Lifestyle Medicine. I teach health coaching and behavioural change for most of the time. And from time to time, I get to do some work alongside my friend and colleague, Darren. And I am Darren Morton, and I'm a professor in lifestyle medicine at Avondale University, uh, where my main role is I'm the director of the Lifestyle Medicine and Health Research Centre. Today in the first episode, we're going to dig into the question, how much of our health and well-being do we get to choose? And Darren, I think you've got a story to tell us. I do have a story, and it's a story that I don't like, Simon, to be honest. I'll just <laughs> say it out there because for us, us health educators, it's not the kind of story we like to hear. So it's the story of Jean... Now, you're going, to, you're going to correct my pronunciation here, I know, because of your French, you know, heritage, you're such a, you know, a, a child of the world. You speak all these exotic languages and constantly correcting me. So anyway, I'll have a crack and then you can tell me what it really should have sounded like. So it's, it's Jean Calmore. How's that? Is that even uh, close? That's, that's, a, 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 that's close. It's close. It's not bad, Darren. Uh, Jean Calmore. Yeah, that wasn't even close, um, yeah. was it? Well, I, I won't even pre- oh, try and pronounce <laughs> what she was. So she's French, clearly, uh, but she's also referred to as a, a doyen. Now, what's a the doyen? Correct? Yeah, a doyen. A doyen. What yeah. Is a do- what is a doyen? A, a doyen. A doyen is uh, is someone who is uh, highly experienced, uh, or it's a woman, uh, of course, uh, who is highly experienced or respected in uh, in her particular field. So uh, this suggests, of course, that uh, Jean is actually famous for something, and uh, I, I want to know what it is, Darren. Okay. I'm sure that all our listeners do too, so I'll, I won't keep the mystery alive any longer. So she's famous for, at the time, purportedly being the oldest living woman at the age of 122 years. And this was in 2015, just before she passed away. And uh, so that's a good innings by anyone's standards, 122 years. But apparently she was well known for three things. And I like the first two. So the first one, first one was her quick wit. And I mean, who doesn't like someone with a quick wit? Eh? So that was that was nice to hear. Um, also, I love this second one. She was known for bicycling, bicycling around the, the small city in which she lives. So the exercise piece comes into play here, which just warms my heart. But then, Simon, here comes the third thing that our, you know, famed longest lived centurion uh is is known for and that is oh, she, no. she oh no <laughs> she smokes daily every day she's lighting it up and of course this doesn't do our cause as health educators uh a great deal of good because we have people then point to her and go hey she there she is this oldest living lady smoking every day just goes to show you know well if it's good for her it's good for me and yeah. of course, she's not alone in this, is she? They're, 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 I'm sure that, you know, you've heard stories and I've heard stories and these stories often get recounted to me frequently. This, this, you know, someone who's a hundred and something who's, you know, there with a the cigarette in front of their birthday cake that everyone's standing around just to keep warm because there's so many candles. And, you know, they've got a, a glass of, you know, some sort of scotch or whiskey in the other hand and like, hey, life is great. And, and I think there's this real tendency for people to go, 
hey, you know, you can you can dig out, you can find these sorts of stories of people who have lived extraordinary, uh, long lives, and yet they don't seem to be following great practices in terms of their lifestyle behaviours. What do we do with that, Simon? Tell me. Well, I think straight away, straight away, we get a, a really interesting insight into the way human minds tend to work, and this is this is what I would call the "I told you so" effect. Um, and the "I told you so" effect emerges when we really want to, you know, dig in and justify our own uh, our own position on something. And of course, that that means that we then become very selective about uh, the evidence that we look for to support that particular claim, and we see the minutest hint that there might be some support for our position and we latch onto it like it's a like it's a, a life vest um, literally like it's going to save our, our, our lives um, and, and then we <laughs> then we of course stake stake everything on that but you know there, there's um there's very little um validity in in an approach like that and and i would um darren the analogy i would make here is um is you know for example uh, um the idea of people who survive uh, jumps from aeroplanes and their parachutes fail to open. We, we, all, we all know that there are stories of people who, you know, fell 15, 20, 25,000 feet uh, and, you know, miraculously somehow managed to survive that. I'll just actually but, just jump in there. I actually know someone personally who has done just that. There you go, but but that wouldn't make you go and jump out of an aeroplane no, with no parachute. No. Would it? Exactly, exactly right. So so yes, there are these outliers, but mm. that doesn't necessarily mean that we should um, we should uh, try and emulate or or follow those people. So uh, I agree, and I, um, I like that word yeah. that you've used there. You know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote the book called Outliers, and it's mm. true. These these are people that are on the far end of the extreme. You know, when you, you you construct that bell curve, they're right up in that tip of the tail. And yet we like to look to those and go, oh, you know, there's there's comfort in that. There's comfort and company, isn't there? And so yeah. if I if I go, oh well, you know, it was it worked for them, maybe it worked for me. Unfortunately, I hate to be the 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 voter of bad news for those people who might be hanging on to these stories, is that there's obviously a lot of really solid science which actually indicates that they are indeed the outliers. And that's there's really strong evidence that when we follow through on healthy lifestyle behaviours, that it's actually really good. Um, and this is what I'd love to explore in this, this episode, not just for our physical health, but also for our mental health. And if you wanted to use that cheesy word, even for our happiness. And so, so I thought it'd be a bit fun to, to explore, you know, what some of the science is about just how impactful our lifestyle behaviours and choices can be. How much do we actually get to choose? of our health so, and wellbeing. Be before we get into that boring stuff about health, can, can I ask you a, a, another question? Mm. T tell, tell me the story of this person who jumped out of an aeroplane and survived. Oh, actually, I, I don't know lots of the details, but something went wrong. <laughs> so surprise, surprise, yeah, there was just, I think it was it got tangled or whatever it might be, but, yeah, a, a lady, um, I won't mention her name because she might be a bit traumatic to recount the story, but, yeah, so she, but, but she actually survived that. And she lived to tell the tale. relatively unharmed. Wow. She lived to tell wow. the tale. Wow. Wow. All right. All right. Well, so, let's, let's, let's talk about health then. Let's talk about health. <laughs> I, to my mind, um, you know, as, as a researcher, there's there's certain studies that come across my desk, and you know, I'm looking at literature, and 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 you know, there's certain things that jump out, and every now and then there's just a landmark study which I I just go, wow, and it really 
I spent time digesting it because to my mind it's a it's a it's you know, it's, it's a watershed moment in terms of our understanding of certain concepts. And you know, one of the, the a very large study that was done um, was the the EPIC study, so the, the Europe, European Perspective Investigation to Cancer. But the spin-off from that, that you know, that involved you know thousands, tens of thousands of, of people over an extended period of time. It was a perspective study, so over time and what they you know what sort of mortality and what sort of um, morbidities occurred over extended periods of time. And this study, for me, uh, it actually came out some time back now. I think it was um, two thousand and eight. But once again, it was one of those for me. A, a you know one of the a, a landmark study, and what they did is they actually said let's look at the the lifestyle behaviours of these people, and they had over twenty thousand individuals involved in this study. They were following them up for about eight years, and what they were interested in is what sort of healthy lifestyle behaviours are they practicing, and there were four that they were particularly interested in. So they were interested in um, how active they were, and whether they were doing around about thirty minutes of you know moderate intensity activity a day. Um, with if they had a relatively healthy diet um, defined by not too high consumption of um, meat products but a lot of fruit and veggies in their diet, um, whether they smoked or not, Jing <laughs> uh, would have failed this one. Uh, so whether they were smokers or not, and then the last one, how well they controlled their body weight. And what was interesting, they weren't interested so much if people were in the you know super skinny, super, super lean range, but whether they had a BMI less than 30. And just for, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the, the whole idea of BMI, which stands for body mass index, um, a BMI less than 25 is considered sort of you know, normal, between 18 and, and 18 and a half and 25 is normal. 25 to 30 is considered overweight. And, and obviously BMI has its limitations because you know, very muscular people can sort of sneak into these ranges as well. But above 30 is considered to be in the obese range. So as they were, people got a, a green tick as long if they were under 30. So it wasn't that they were super lean. They just and they, they may have even been in the overweight category, but they weren't in the obese category. Mm. And so then they looked at these, these, these participants and they said, okay, so let's see how many green ticks they're getting, you know, controlling body weight, physical activity, healthy eating, and not smoking, and compare those who have lots of ticks to those who have very few. And to me, I, I think it was just really telling because very large study, well-controlled, published in, you know, very high-powered journal. And this is what they found. And, and as I, I state these numbers, I think I really love the work of, um, you know, Dr. David Katz, who was a former president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, where he says, you know, often we read numbers and we go, ah, there's an interesting statistic. But what we fail to do is put faces to these 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 statistics you know so so put so put people to these 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 numbers um so what they found was this uh of myocardial infarctions these these are heart attacks fatal heart attacks about uh 80 preventable so around about eight out of ten heart attacks could be prevented by those four lifestyle choices by practicing those four things you know, if you think about this, I mean, we all know people who have had heart attacks. I mean, I've I could fill both hands and both feet, and and you know, it's 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 really powerful. That you imagine if in eight out of ten cases that didn't need to, to be the case through these four simple lifestyle choices. Uh, when it comes to type two diabetes, that was about ninety three percent preventable. 
So once again, we know so many people, well, we all do nowadays, people with, with type 2 diabetes and, and, you know, there's obviously it's something you don't want to develop if, if you can help it. Um, and they, you know, in, nine, in more than 9 out of 10 cases, that was preventable through these four lifestyle choices. About 50%, about half of strokes were preventable through these four lifestyle practices and about a third or 36% of cancers were also preventable as well. So to my mind, that was that was a, a moment. You know, I remember reading those statistics and you know putting faces to the figures once again, and just thinking, "Wow, you know, this really does make a difference." Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, you've got those outliers, but if you look at the big picture, um, this lifestyle is a really powerful um, medicine, a really powerful way forward for preventing these conditions. Yeah. And Darren, something that I think is really important in this whole picture as well too is acknowledging the powerful preventative um, effect that that such lifestyle practices can have and indeed the powerful restorative effect that they can have as well. And also remembering that there's much more to health and well-being than just dodging a heart attack, dodging cancer, you know, dodging a brain aneurysm and, and so on. Um, you know, our, our health and vitality is a resource for us. Uh, it's a resource that enables us to squeeze every drop of juice out of, out of our lives that we possibly can. It's a resource that uh, enables us to make a powerfully useful contribution to the communities, the societies uh, in which we live, um, to be part of something much bigger than, than, than just ourselves. And these principles and practices, of course, um, support uh, all of that. Um, and I'll, I'll share with you a, a personal story of health here that, um, that that may be a part of this as well. You know, Darren, a lot of people won't know that um, several years ago I had uh, uh, retinal detachments, um, one in each eye, completely spontaneous. Mm. No, I wasn't bungee jumping or doing anything else uh, <laughs> crazy like that at the time. Uh, just uh, unfortunate, uh, unfortunate genetics, I think. Um, the, the, the happy news to this story, which I'll share right now, is that, is that I had a, a wonderful surgeon who um, successfully um, reattached the retina in each eye. Um, my, my vision now is nothing short of sensational and, uh, and the likelihood of uh, any sort of adverse outcome from this point forward is um, as close to zero as you can, as you can get. However, I had, um, I had a zero complication uh, recovery from mm. that surgery um, and um, zero, uh, zero complications, zero adverse um, consequences following those surgeries, which I know from personal experience, knowing other people who've had this surgery, um, a lot of people can, uh, can encounter. And at least in my mind, I attribute that um, zero complications to the underlying uh, practices that that I had all through that and the underlying state of my own health and well-being um, which I think just facilitated the um, facilitated the the recovery um, the, the the event itself was unavoidable no no amount of uh, eating broccoli or uh, riding a bicycle you know around villages in France or, mm. or anything like that would have would have prevented um, a retinal detachment however, um, the recovery from it was remarkably uncomplicated and smooth, and um, yeah, I, I think lifestyle medicine practices have a have a lot to uh, a, a, a big part to play in all of that. 
Yeah, and, you know, I like what you've pointed out there. And I think this is where, you know, some uh, people who are enthusiasts of lifestyle as therapy and lifestyle as medicine can sometimes think that practice a healthy lifestyle and you're never going to die. You know, you're never going to get unwell. And that's that's not the reality. You know, obviously, as you said, there's nothing that you could have done to prevent that. And I actually remember after just shortly after you had your first surgery and we had dinner one time and you, you were telling me about how they... The, the fluid in the eye, because they, they actually initially fill it up with gas, don't they, to, as they, after the it, post-surgery? Exactly right. They, uh, the, the jelly um, that sits in your eyeball is evacuated. It's sucked, sucked out of your eyeball because, that, because it's actually the jelly that's, uh, that's the, the miscreant here. It's the jelly that's causing the retina to misbehave. So, uh, so, so the jelly is sucked out and then a gas bubble uh, is uh, injected into the eye. Uh, which after after the laser uh, after the retina has been lasered back in place, the the gas bubble really exerts quite a bit of internal pressure, holds the retina in place while it's healing, uh, and then gradually just uh, gradually dissipates itself over the period of uh, three to four weeks. Mm. And I remember you saying that, and as the as the fluid fills back up, you get that that wave like <gasps> sensation. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a period of period of time you can period of time where you can you can actually see the gas bubble getting smaller in your in your eye, and uh, and you can see the see the fluid level in your eye as it's starting to uh, increase again. Yeah, it's a little little disconcerting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So look, I, but I, but I like the point that you make, and there are, there are certain conditions that we experience we all age you know disease uh, organ failure happens to the best of us regardless of how super conscientious and diligent you are with with your lifestyle practice so this this whole intent of this episode and talking about how much of our health and our well-being do we get to control it's not to minimize or or deny the fact that we all age you know that currently as i understand the 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 mortality rate still stands as one you know, we're, we're, we're all going to die, like, and, you know, regardless of, of, um, of you know, how, how we, we approach our life and our lifestyle choices. But once again, you know, to lean on, on David Katz, you know, he talks about the whole idea that through healthy lifestyle choices, I think the evidence is completely overwhelming um, that we can add years to our life. But I really like what you said. We can add, add, actually add life to our years. And, you know, I remember, you know, talking about the idea of it's, it's not just about living long period of time that i'm interested in what i'm really interested in is is actually well what do they say you know i actually want to die young just at an old age um and i remember i remember when we my wife um she was involved in in she was a teacher at our local school and we take kids on um like a service trip to rural communities out um west from where we live and anyway, they do. We get these kids doing a whole lot of activities where they, you know, they'd be painting fences in the local park, and they'd be weeding the cemetery, and they'd be doing all these sorts of things. But one of them, some of the kids actually had a bit of musical talent, so we took a group of them along to a uh, a retirement village one time. It's like a senior living type. And anyway, they they did this, and, and it, it got went a bit rogue actually because the kids, <laughs> one of the kids decided he wasn't that so good at singing, but he came along with the team, but he was good at dancing. And so all of a sudden, I remember this kid. It was a bit of a character in front of these, you know, these these elderly, more mature individuals sitting around, prepared for this lovely little concert that young people were going to put on. And he breaks out into some dance moves that <laughs> that would make anyone, any rap dancer, proud. And he was dancing around and flaunting it. And I remember that the, their eyes just lit up, and they love this. And then one one dear lady, she turns to me and she goes, 
what I would give for that kind of energy again. And I thought, you know, that that's it, isn't it? You know, it's really for me yep. that, that whole idea yep. of, you know, living with a vitality. And I love that word. You know, it's not just about long, you know, longevity. It's about vitality. Yep. And, yep. and certainly there's just so much evidence to show um, that healthy lifestyle practices play, feed into that, you know, when we, when we, it gives us more energy. And, and certainly that's one of the things I, that, that really is a driver for me. So, you know, the, the science I think is really strong showing that um, healthy lifestyle practices can prevent many of these conditions. Where I think it's really exciting, and, and this is once again one of those, those watershed moments for me, um, I've been involved in the development of, uh, of, of sort of interventions for chronic disease for, for many years. And um, I have seen, like this is, you know, for the past 15 years, I've seen interventions where people adopt and we would call this you know therapeutic lifestyle change this is quite um quite rigorous to, to a certain extent where people make quite radical shifts in their eating patterns and their movement patterns and how they manage their stress and all the rest of it but i've seen um countless examples of people for example having coming off their high blood pressure medications um coming off their diabetic medications and for me i just i just thought it was a common understanding that many of these things that that, that lifestyle is not just powerful for, for prevention but it's, it can actually be curative for people that have these pre-existing conditions and and so we we were publishing articles and in some instances we were trying to use the word reverse reversal and we talk about for example reversal of type 2 diabetes and and we get we would get so much pushback like i remember they're just saying reversal you know diabetes type 2 diabetes is a progressive um, condition uh you cannot reverse it refrain from using that terminology and it was it was really it was very heavy-handed and um and I, I used to come back and say well wait a sec these people had type 2 diabetes they were taking insulin they were on medications for this their blood sugar levels weren't normalized now they are completely normalised in a normal range. They are not taking any medication for that. They're not using any insulin. What do you call that? Mm. <laughs> what do you call that's that? Pro so my progressive, progressive till it's not, right? That's correct. And so, you know, so anyway, this I, I think this is this study when it came out, and this was published in Lancet, and obviously Lancet being one of the, the, the peak medical journals in 2018. And when I read this, I just it, it warmed my heart. Because for me, once again, this was another watershed moment where they had around about um, 300 people uh, with type 2 diabetes. Some had had that, uh, the, the condition for, for many years, like up to about eight years or so. And then they, they uh, introduced intensive therapeutic lifestyle change and, and in particular targeting weight loss. And, uh, and what they found, and I'm, I'm going to read this. This is from the article because this was the, the conclusion that they had in the um, uh at the, the end of the abstract. And this is what they said. Our findings show that at 12 months, so after one year, um, almost half of participants achieved remission. So they didn't use the word reversal, but remission to a non-diabetic state and were off all anti-diabetic anti um, drugs. Mm -hmm. And then it says this, and this is their concluding statement. Remission of type 2 diabetes is a practical target for primary care. And for you know, for me, once again, what this this was almost a coming of age, I think, for lifestyle as medicine, because what it was showing is that yeah, we've known for a long time that that it can help prevent many of these conditions, but it's actually curative. This can be used not just for prevention, but also for management and and treatment as well. 
Mm. And so to me, that's, you know, it's really powerful evidence that, well, yeah, okay, we've got, you know, genetics and sometimes we get dealt bad cards. There's no doubt about mm. that. Some, some, some certain things that, that just happen that we don't have a lot of control over. But the evidence is super strong despite those outliers that our lifestyle behaviours, our lifestyle choices have a tremendous impact on the progression of our disease states and ultimately our vitality and our longevity. Lift is supported by The Lift Project, an educational adventure where you learn science-based ways to lift your mood and your life. The Lift Project is lifting lives around the globe in healthcare settings, workplaces, schools, universities and communities. To find out more, visit theliftproject.global. Darren, the, the the account that you gave of the the pushback in relation to using words like uh, like reversal um, illustrates for me, I think the the dual challenges that that exist here. The, the first challenge, of course, is to um, is to design therapeutic lifestyle interventions at a at a, a, a dosage, a fortitude, a, a, an intensity that that actually does the job that that needs to be done. Um, which is kind of unremarkable uh, if you um, if if we know that we all need a certain amount of vitamins and minerals and dietary fiber every day. Uh, you know, eating one banana not going to get you over the line. Uh, if if we all know that we need to uh, do both strength training exercise and and cardio respiratory exercise every day, um, walking slowly for five minutes, um, lifting lifting two pound hand weights not going to get you over the line. So we need to we need to set the, the intensity right. But the other thing that we need to do is recognise the power of discourse, the, the power of belief in shaping attitudes towards what we think we can achieve and, and what we think we can't achieve. And 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 when a when a whole system of of uh, medical and healthcare delivery has arranged itself for so many years around the idea that this and that and the other disease are progressive and irreversible, changing the attitudes and the beliefs around that itself is a major task um, that, that, uh, that also requires some, uh, some focus, I think, too. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you've introduced the topic for about our next eight episodes on the, <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> Um, because, yeah, a whole lot of really, you know, valuable things that you've just brought out there that, that, that come to the fore. Linking back to this, and, and as a psychologist, you'll be interested in this and I'll be interested in your reflections on it. You know, that there's really good evidence that, as we've explored, that, that your lifestyle habits and, your, you know, your daily choices affect your physical health. What about mental health? You know, and obviously everyone's talking about mental health nowadays because mm. you know, around the world it's sort of a crisis point we know that, you know, rates of depression, anxiety are just just out of control. How much of that is you know is is circumstantial? How much of it our, our genetics? Um, I certainly know people that are a whole lot cheerier than others, or seem to be naturally cheerier than others. Is that just because it's nurture, or is it nature, or what, what's what would be your gut impression for that? Because there's some, there's been some work done on this space as well, and I'd love to love to explore some of the thinking um, of where that's up to. But what would be what would be your reflections in, as a psychologist? So I think, Darren, one of the um, one one of the contributions to 
the thinking and understanding of, of humans and humanity and, and what it means to be human, th that I'm, I'm, I'm not proud of in psychology is the idea of mind-body dualism. Um, the, the, mm. and, and we see this represented in the language that we use. For example, we started talking about physical health and now we're, <laughs> we've introduced yeah. the phrase mental health as mm. if they're two separate and distinct things. Um, and uh, I, I'm certainly not, of that, uh, certainly not of that view. And I think we already have enough evidence from uh, research in lifestyle medicine to really significantly challenge that view because when we see improvements and changes in one, we typically see improvements and changes in the other. And when we see degradations in one, we often see degradations uh, in the other as well. Yeah, there's that, that reciprocity. Yeah, exactly right. They're, they're, not, they're not necessarily moving in, in lockstep with each other. However, uh, it, it, it does feel like we're observing different dimensions of the same big concept and that and that big concept we might call health or health and well-being or something like that which has elements of uh, physical health uh, mental health spiritual health social health relational health um, um, if you like um, vocational health as well uh, you know all these all these um, parts of who we are as human beings that tend to uh, interact with each other and tend to influence each other in mm. complex, multi-directional pathways. Mm. For sure. So as, as, you know, in your years of, you know, clinical practice and experience as a psychologist, how, what would you guesstimate if you had to, if, so because work's been done on this and that what they've really identified that seems to be three key contributors to our overall sense of mental health and well-being. Certainly there's a genetic contribution. And so, you know, it, it, that's well established. Um, there's also our life circumstances, which will play into that. And obviously there are various domains to that. But then there's that part that we get to choose, you know, our lifestyle choices, our daily choices. As I'm, I don't know, if, not even sure if you've seen the study, this, but, but mm. what, would you, what would you guesstimate in your opinion? What would you think, what would be the percentages be? Well, spo spoiler alert, I have seen the study, so I do know the answer okay. here. Um, okay. but, I'm, but I'm going to say that one of, one of, the, um, one of the complicating uh, elements of this uh, also is um, personality. And, and there's a, a concept in psychology, which I'm sure you know, uh, Darren, the idea of uh, locus of control, locus of control, mm -hmm. uh, the, the extent to which we feel ourselves or experience ourselves as being in control of our destiny versus uh, the idea that, that things simply happen to us. And I think that personality feature mm. at an individual level probably plays a role here too. So someone yes. like uh, someone like me, and I think you also, who have a pretty strong internal locus of control, we, we mm. both have a pretty strong sense of our own capacity to influence things in our lives. Mm. We probably overestimate um, the extent to which we can <laughs> direct our own, uh, um, yeah. you know, direct direct our own and influence our own kind of happiness and and health and well being, whereas others might underestimate it. But that but that's where this research uh, becomes really useful. And I, I think you're talking about the research of Sonia Lubomirsky. Um, I'm glad that uh, you pronounced that because <laughs> I probably would have struggled once again. So yes, I am. Yes. Yep. So tell us tell us about it. 
All right, let's not keep the mystery alive any longer. So, yes, yeah, so I mean, this was published back in maybe 15 years ago now. So I think it's around 2008. So they first proposed that uh, when you look at the work that's been done with, you know, identical twins who are living in different situations, they were trying to ascertain how much of it's nurture, how much of it's nature. Their best guesstimate was that probably about 50% of our happiness, and, you know, I, I use that word sort of a little lightly, but but sort of as a, in terms of our emotional well-being, if you like, um, and our mental health, was determined by our genetics. So 50% genetics, which once again, you know, speaks to that whole, you know, what sort of card we're dealt there. And, and certainly I know I've got a friend, I'm not going to mention the fact that he's an accountant, um, but I would say that he doesn't seem to be naturally as cheery as some of my other friends who are of different locations. So maybe it's a personality thing once again, but, you know, obviously genetics. Will well, play poor, poor vocational choice. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, well, then, and then they talk about, you know, economists being those who didn't have the personality to be an accountant. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but anyway, so they, they estimate 50% was as genetically determined, our happiness. Then they said about 10% is our life circumstances. And that intrigues me because most of us, I think, certainly I would have before I saw this work, would have thought it's a lot more than that. Like, you know, and I think that there's a tendency for most of us to be thinking, hey, if I just had that, you know, or if, if I just, this was better in my life, then all of a sudden my life would be, you know, you know be rainbows and butterflies um and and what the, their work seems to suggest is that it's not quite the case because certainly we know of you know in, in different countries um you know uh, income um standard of living doesn't seem to have the, the, the sort of impact on happiness and mental health that we thought it would and so that's why it actually came to that that quite low figure only 10 percent so, that's so speaking saying, speaking very yeah. practically, then if if I happen to win uh, fifty million dollars in in Powerball this week, um, mm. that's that's ultimately going to have a pretty limited impact on my yeah. It's interesting you know, because once, that's that's one of those external factors, right? That's correct, and and you know the, the study seems. In fact, many people who win the lotto actually um, they, they they don't have a lot to show for it in a relatively short space of time. There's actually been some work done looking about five years later. Many of them have blown the lot, um, and I think that speaks to a, a little bit. Maybe this is a topic for another episode, but that whole belief piece that you talk about. You know, if you if you anyway, we'll come back to that another time. But happiness tends to habituate. To yeah, so you, I imagine for a few days after, as you were buying your Ferraris, uh, you would probably be happier. Um, but what we'd see is that, that would taper off and probably come back to your, your basal levels or your your, your, your sort of um, your, your normal levels anyway. We see even in traumatic events where we see people, for example, that are that are in um, situations where they might say, you know, become a, you know, paraplegic. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of trauma attached to that. They'll be down for an extended period of time. But after a couple of years, you often quite, you often see their, their happiness levels, their mental health levels returning to, to you know, so pre-incident. Um, so this is, this is broadly the hedonic adaptation research, right? Exactly. The idea that yeah. uh, yes. over time yeah. we need increasing amounts of hedonic stimuli to yes. achieve the same levels of, uh, of happiness. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And so what they, they came away with, this, this idea that our happiness, if you want, our mental well-being, um, was about 50% genetically determined. 
10% based on our life circumstances, and then 40% we got to choose through our daily choices, our intentional activities. And that's been challenged a bit. Obviously, there's been some, some other researchers looking at that. Um, I think it was around about 2017 uh, that some, some other researchers came on board and started. To, and, and what was interesting to me, and I think this is what we've seen, is that the genetic contribution has been pulled back further and further. And, and the reason for that, I think, is that um, this, this awakening, this understanding of epigenetics and how that works and, and the fact that, yes, it's true that many of us have genetic predispositions to certain things and we might have genes that are, are there ready to, you know, cause us to be a, you know, develop lung cancer if we smoke or whatever it might be. Often um, what epigenetics is teaching us is that these, uh, these genes load the gun, but it's actually our lifestyle choices and our, and our habits that actually pull the trigger. And so, you know, I might, for example, have the, the, gene, the gene for lung cancer, but if I never smoke, then that will never be expressed and, and never be realised. Um, and so I think what, what's, what we've seen is that um, there's, this, there's, there's this a lot more attention to how our behaviours influence our happiness. And so that genetic component's pulled down a bit. There is some evidence that our, um, our life circumstances contribute more than 10%. And, and certainly I think that, you know, where we see um, cases like COVID, you know, where we saw just, a, just a, an escalation in, in mental distress, um, you know, partly that was circumstantial. But obviously our circumstances can often, often influence our ability and, and to interact and connect with people and do things that, that make us happy. But mm. I, I think, you know, what, what the science, and this is where I sort of arrive at it, if you take everything that's being done in this space, probably we get to choose about half of our happiness, half of our mental well-being with, you know, our life circumstances and genetics obviously um, contributing the other half. Mm -hmm. And it, so, it, yeah. It, it, would make, it would make sense that, uh, that we would need to continue to choose to do things that are going to contribute to that because we, we, see, this, we see this in other areas of our health as well. Um, I, I, can't, I can't go to sleep tonight and have a solid eight and a half hour sleep and then not bother sleeping for the rest of the week. <laughs> I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't eat a fabulous meal of, uh, I don't know, stir-fried tofu and, uh, and, uh, and broccoli or, or, or my favourite, uh, you know, roasted, uh, roasted Brussels sprouts with, uh, with garlic and chilli. I can't eat that meal tonight and then expect that that's going to keep me in fabulous health. Um, for the next uh, six mm. months or year, I've got to I've got to keep topping up on those mm. things all the time. So it makes sense that we would need to keep uh, topping up through the choices that we make each day, uh, mm. in order to maintain good levels of um, of um, buoyant mental health. I, I really like that you've drawn that point out because I think that's something that gets forgotten. I mean, I do I do work in in workplaces, and they often will say, "Okay, so we want to do something." That'll fix this forever, you know. And it's like there's nothing, you know, when it, that that fixes things forever. You know, yeah. This is a, and health. It's this constant pursuit. Well-being yeah. is this constant yeah. pursuit. And I think that in some regards, like, you know, we all have moments. Like my well, wife and I were joking the other day. Sometimes we'd had a pretty big week. We'd been out and busy, and, and it got up in the morning, and you think. Oh, I've just got to wait till my ankles start working again. You know, like, and so I feel like I'm like Jean, you know, 122 years old right now. You have moments like that, and but then you she have these pretty, other. She had pretty good ankles, I think. 
Apparently, apparently yeah. exceptional ankles, all that cycling. Um, and but but I think that I you see you have my, everyone has moments like that. But you know, I have moments where I just feel full of the joy of living as well. Mm. And and there, I think what's that? That's the pursuit. You know, that's what you're constantly striving for. So so I think in some regards, you know, health and well-being, it is this ongoing quest. You know, to experience it, and and it needs constant investment. Mm. It's not mm. like a you know, I can get all my, I can cram my sleep and now I don't have to sleep for the rest of the year. In the same way that we can't cram all that food, you know, or we can't cram all that exercises. I love, you know, Stephen Covey, um, I love his work and, and he talks about the law of the farm. You know, he says natural processes take time, you know, and they follow an order and a flow and a pattern and you have to go in sync with that. Mm. You can't cram natural process you can't say hey i want to bump a crop this year so i'm just going to but i'm going to sit around for the first 11 and a half months and then i'm going to go nuts i'm going to do all my plowing over all day all night and then i'm going to sow and then i'm going to water and i'll still expect the same outcomes and returns it just doesn't work that way yeah i i think you're i think you're full of the joy of living darren that's that's Thanks. one of the reasons i like hanging out around you well, when you win the Powerball, fifty million, and you share you know, half of that with me, I think that we'll both be full of the joy of. You'll, you'll be very full of the joy of living <laughs> for about a month or two, and then things will get back to normal. Hey, Simon, I'll, I'll interest, check in with you. Yeah, you know, we've, we've asked that question: How much of our health and well-being do we get to choose? What's your what's your, what's your takeaway? What's what's the so, what's the so my, take you? My, my my takeaway from this discussion is. Um, I guess two two things. First of all, I'm not sure that I actually know. Uh, I'm not sure that I know exactly how much we uh, we get to control, but I do know we get to be the directors of our own lives, uh, and we do get to influence it. And and at the end of the day, how much we get to control is possibly going to be. Uh, partly determined by our species and and by the, the mere fact that we're human beings and there are uh, there are societal, cultural, environmental, uh, genetic, epigenetic, biological, all sorts of processes that go on uh, which we cannot influence directly, and there are things that we can influence directly. So my takeaway is uh, pick the things that you can do, pick the things that you can influence, and do them. I like that. And my takeaway is that lifestyle as medicine is a really hopeful message. And I think what it speaks to is that there are things that we can do. Um, despite the fact um, we might have, you know, the greatest genetics, we might not have the, the greatest lifestyle circum or circumstances of our life at, at a particular time, there are things that we can do at that moment in time to affect changes in our physical and our mental health because they're obviously united anyway. So so to me, I find you know, the, the lifestyle medicine space just incredibly hopeful um, because I think it, it, it's, it can speak life into people. So you know what? Can we affect change in our health and well-being? The science certainly says we can. You've got great genetics. Look at you. <laughs> Well, I'm glad because you've got two great eyes now and the fact that you can say that and see clearly is a beautiful thing. Look forward to next episode. Lift is presented by Simon Matthews and Darren Morton. It's sponsored by The Lift Project and supported by Avondale University. Music provided by Pixabay. 
If you have a question or a topic you would like to hear more about, send us an email to podcast at theliftproject.global. The Lift Project. Lift your mood. Lift your life. Thank you.